0: associate of Paul's in, in the work of the church. He's serving as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, same church that the book of Ephesians is written to. And he's instructing Timothy about how Timothy is to handle some specific matters in the life of the congregation. So it's a very practical and down-to-earth section of Scripture. And it's also a section which should be particularly useful to us today because it allows us to get a little glimpse into the day-to-day life of the early Christians uh, in a way that few other passages of the New Testament do. So let's read together 1 Timothy 5, verses 1-10. to Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. So here we have some very specific instructions. And these instructions reflect something that was true in the ancient world, especially among the Jewish community. And that is that there was a special place and position reserved for widows. Now this morning, I would like the widows to raise their hands. There is a widow. Are there any other widows here? Well, I think actually Annie Lane is a widow. And that's one thing I want to say to you is that The the word widow was used to refer not just to women whose husbands had died, but also to women who were abandoned uh, or who had no husband and had gotten into uh, the later period of life. Uh, In other words, older women who are in need of support. And so we have a few widows. We've had more in the past. We don't have many today, and that's one of the tragedies of living in a uh, in a city like Bloomington, which is because of the nature of the university, largely cut off from the elderly, even though we are becoming a place where retired people retire, uh, I have I have said before that in my first church, I think it was in my first two or three years, I had 39 funerals, and in Bloomington, in the whole time I'd been here, I don't think I've I don't think I've had, it's been 12 years, I don't think I've had, maybe I've had 15 funerals, maybe not even that many. And so, uh, in Bloomington, we don't have a lot of widows, but when we return to normal life after we get done with the university, which I hope you will all have the privilege of doing, um, you will be around widows. And there is much here to teach us, not just about relating to widows, but actually about motherhood. Now, if we look in Scripture, we see that God has a heart for widows. And I'm going to read a number of texts. Listen to what they say about God's heart for widows. In Exodus 22, verse 22, we have a command of God, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. So they are singled out. And God says we're not to afflict them. We're not to hurt them. We're not to harm them. In Deuteronomy 24, beginning with verse 17, we read, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. Why would it single out widows and orphans? Well, because they're powerless before the courts. Why? Well, because courts tend to find in favor of the powerful. We saw this in the goat farm where an influential woman who had been for many years at the center of the Democratic Party here in town kept having a hissy fit over us building on the goat farm, which I'm glad we're not building there. And what happened? Well, basically the city gave in to her. Why? Because she has many, many, many influential connections. Now, picture yourself, you've never been involved in party politics in the, in the city or in the county, and you really have nobody who who are your children, either physically or politically, and you go into the court system, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is the court is going to tend to turn justice towards the merchant or the businessman or whoever it is that has influence against you. And if you're an orphan, the same thing is true. This is why often, uh, not often, but I understand all the time, Uh, children who either have been taken out of their natural homes or orphans have the court-appointed advocate whose whole job it is to protect them because children and widows can't do it. God says that He is the advocate of widows and orphans. And so He's not a powerful merchant. He's not a wealthy man. He's not somebody with a lot of political connections in town. He is the maker of the earth. He says... I am their advocate. You are not to twist justice against them. Alright? You shall not pervert the justice to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So what's going on there? Well, he's reminding us uh, that there was a day when we were powerless before the Egyptians, before Pharaoh, had absolutely no influence, where every... Uh, Whim that they had at their beck and call. Completely oppressed. He says, Remember you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you, now into the practical application of this, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, some of the harvest, you shall not go back to get it. Now, why would that be? Well, it says, it shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, and in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So in other words, when they're out harvesting and because of inefficiencies or overlooking, they leave some of the valuable crop in the field, God says they're not to go back and pick it up, because that is his way of providing for the poor and the destitute, for the widow and the orphan. It's very interesting. There's a, there's a movie called The Gleaners, I think it's named, and it's, a, uh, it's a, uh, a documentary out of, I believe, France. And it's about the people that survive by going around taking the things that other people throw out or leave behind. And in the movie, one of the points that's made is that in France, they have laws against, uh, or not laws against, but laws protecting gleaners. Nobody can oppress them. Nobody can go after them. Nobody can arrest them. Nobody can try to keep them off. Uh, They are allowed uh, to satisfy their hunger by gleaning. And this is what it was called. And then in verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, what does beating the tree do? Well, not punishing it, but rather getting it to drop... It's olives. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Isn't that sweet? You know, think of God seeing every widow and every orphan and every alien. In other words, every, uh, uh, what, what, would, what would they be called? Wetback that comes over the Rio Grande River. And they are to be cared for tenderly. They are to be protected. They are to be allowed to get the crops and, and the wealth of our land that, that we're so busy getting lots of money that we leave behind because it's insignificant. This is God's heart. God cares for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, and for the alien. In Deuteronomy ten eighteen it says, He executes and this is speaking of God, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. In Psalm sixty eight verse five, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Proverbs fifteen, twenty five, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. You know, you go out and you plant a row of white pine trees, and your next door neighbor is a widow, right? And you, you know where the boundary line is, but you know you pat those trees over on her property so you have more of the privacy. You know what I'm saying? God says, now, I'm going to establish her boundary. Your white pine trees are going to die. This is sort of a joke. I mean, it may not be. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, and then listen to this. Reprove the ruthless. Do you run around any ruthless people? Are you around people who are uncaring, unfeeling, and mean and cruel to others? Think about that. And do you obey God in reproving the ruthless? It's hard, isn't it? Usually the ruthless are ruthless for a reason. Namely, they have no fear. What do they fear? They're ruthless. They're sleek. And then he says, Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Now, where would you plead for a widow? You know, every Scripture command should immediately hit you as having some application. If we go through Scripture and we think, well, that's a nice sentiment, we've missed the point. You know, if you're reading the tax code, the tax code says if you have three children, you may not take the extra child tax care credit, but if you have two, you may. And you, you know, just say, well, forget that. That's stupid. I've got six children, and I ought to be able to take it. The tax code is going to come back and sting you. If you read God's Word, it has a command. And you know the command has application to your life, but you don't bother meditating on it. And you think, well, the important thing is, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what I like. And then He says, reprove the ruthless, learn to do good, plead for the widow, defend the orphan. You should be thinking, how can I defend an orphan? And how can I plead for a widow? How can you do it? Jeremiah 22, 3-5, through Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. Now when you hear this, do you think about America becoming a desolation? Do you think of any reason why, with the blood in our streets, America should not be judged by God? Do you see this as being the principal way that you can serve this nation, namely, to end the bloodshed. There's nothing that is so tied to God's judgment of a nation as shedding the blood of innocents. We all know this. You go through the prophets in the Old Testament, it's just again and again and again and again that it's listed. And so, if we are patriotic, and if we love America, the most important act of justice we can perform is to try to stop the bloodshed. If we love, for instance, women, we want those women to be able to give birth to their children and to be loved and supported. We don't want the children killed. And so, you know, I I encourage you to remember this is not an act of Republican Party politics. It has nothing to do with political parties. It has to do with our loving our nation and being patriotic and wanting to defend our nation and the citizens in it. And you see this all through Scripture. God commands us to pursue justice. He commands us to end bloodshed of the innocent. He commands us to take to heart the widow and the orphan and what is called the sojourner, the stranger, or the alien. Now Michael and I have been having a debate over um, a paper that ran in... Foreign Affairs a few years ago and caused a great hullabaloo in academia. And it's a paper about America and the incredible explosion of the Hispanic population in America. Now, I don't want to get into a debate over bilingualism during my sermon. I don't think Scripture maybe addresses that explicitly. But nevertheless, who are the sojourners and the aliens and the strangers in our nation? Who are they? Huh? Who are they? Huh? Do you know that they feed you? And I'm absolutely certain that uh, a number of you eat at restaurants that have illegal aliens working at them. I do. Now, am I saying we shouldn't enforce our immigration laws? I'm not saying anything about that. What I am saying is that God commands us to have a heart for those in our midst who do not have the claim of citizenship. Do you understand? That's what a soldier or an alien and a stranger are. They're people who have no local claim of belonging. And we, as God's people, are supposed to be noticeable. Are supposed to like have a, have, have a reputation for having at the center of our hearts people who have no belongingness, okay? So how do we do that? Now, there are some among us that do do this. Uh, Jeho, Lucas, and I could keep naming. There are some who have a heart for the alien. But not many of us do. Many of us view them as a threat. Really say, you know, what right do they have to come into this country? And I would remind you, what right did we have to come in this country? Okay, uh, I'll shut up and keep going. Uh, how you do them both, I don't know, but I'll try. Um, in other words, I'll get off meddling and get back to Scripture. But of course, it's Scripture that says that you're supposed to care for the alien and the sojourner, and for the widow and orphan. And as men and women, were called to care for the widow in Scripture. And I've read all these texts because God cares for the widow. They were called to care for her as if she were their own mother. It was even more imperative, according to Scripture, that children provide for their own parents, not neglecting them in their old age, but caring for them with great solicitude and tenderness. And this responsibility to one's own parents was clearly understood as one of the principal applications of the fifth of the Ten Commandments, which says. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. I wonder whether any of us believe that our old age is partly the result of whether or not you obey the fifth commandment. I'll tell you one thing. I was talking to my family about somebody recently and I said, I'll bet they're dead by 23. And why? Absolute defiance in every area of their life of every single authority. And I've lived long enough to see that people whose entire life is given over to rebellion to every authority die young. They do. They die. It may be violence. It may be drunk driving. It may be addiction and overdose. But if somebody's entire life is in defiance of authority, it's amazing how often they do die young. Do you realize this is the first commandment with a promise? And do you realize the promises? That there is a connection between you honoring your father and mother and you living long in the land the Lord your God gives you. And so what? This is, I think, it's. Made, you may look at it as petty, but I think this is a good reason to go home and call your mother today. I think it's a good reason to give her flowers. Because you might live a year longer. The necessity of honoring parents was carried over into uh, sections of the New Testament, the epistles that are called the house rules. And this is something I want you to get in the habit of thinking of. I want you to see that that the church is the household of faith. Household language is used constantly in the New Testament to refer to the church. Uh, I want you to think of those sitting in the pew next to you or the chair as being your brother and sister in the Lord, as being your mother and father in the Lord, as being your son and daughter, your grandchildren in the Lord. I want you to look at your pastors and elders and deacons as being the father authorities. I want you to look at the older women as being the mother authorities in, in, in the home. I want you to realize that you will have as much trouble in the church getting along with people as you have in your own home, and don't lie to me about it. Okay? uh the the problem today is we have no expectation of the church no expectation that it'll be a family no expectation that we'll live in intimacy with each other uh that it'll be much like our homes are today namely we never have family meals we're like zing in zing out and you know maybe watch television together that's a high point of intimacy you know Pacers playoffs intimacy all right no, the church is supposed to be a place of intimacy, and we're supposed to relate to each other as mother, as daughter, as father, as son, as grandparent, as husband, as wife, all right? And you know something? That's hard, okay? It is hard. Be honest, it's hard. And uh, otherwise, what benefit is the church to us? You know, if the church does not rub off our red, rough edges, if the church is not iron sharpening iron, who needs it? If the church is not a means of grace, but only a place that you go and sort of, you know, it's like the difference between going into Steak and Shake and driving through the drive-thru. I've noticed that if you go through the drive-thru, you get your malt quickly. If you go in, you become a part of the organism. <laughs> and boy, did Dave Carell and I become a part of the organism two nights ago. How long, David? At least 20 minutes. Yeah, before they realized that nobody was getting us our malts. Actually, I got a malt and you got a... Yeah, we did. Can you tell it? And then all of a sudden, it was like the gates opened. And I think almost over half the employees of that store came up and apologized to us. And then again and again... Well, that's supposed to be what the church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to fail and we're supposed to apologize and we're supposed to say it's okay and it's not supposed to be a drive through place. Robert Schuller gave us the drive through church, right? Remember he started a church? I, actually, I knew this was going to happen sometime. <sighs> It's not I you're gonna to have to live with me holding my nose. Thank you. It had been a week, so I was hopeful. I'm sorry, this is
1: <laughs> Can you live with
0: it? Huh? Say yes, somebody okay um, Robert Schuller is the man out in California that started a church where he built a uh, he built a drive well he started at a drive drive-in movie theater then he ended up building a church where the wall along the side of the church was glass, and on Sunday mornings people would drive in on over here and sit in their cars and have speakers and stuff. And the people over here would be in the sanctuary. And I worked for the man that built that church. Clark Esser was his name. And now he has Crystal Cathedral, right? And this place uh, was the perfect example of what most biblical Christians have become today, namely people who want a church where they really could conceivably drive into the sanctuary and stay in their car. Okay? The Bible tells us that we are supposed to be a church of fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, and that we are supposed to have a real life together. You know, I'm not going to be able to continue. Um, This will stop. Joseph, come here, please. This is my son. And you can just pick up from here. <laughs> you can, don't worry. We'll handle it. And don't feel any need to use all the words, just preach. Oh wait, you gotta take this off of me. Here.
1: I knew this was gonna happen someday. <laughs> I don't know much about Robert Schuller, <laughs> So, I'll, uh, I'll stick to uh, what has been written here in front of me. Um, so, as men and women of God were called to care for the widow as if she were their own mother, even more so, it is imperative that children provide for their own parents. Um, Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Um, Ephesians 6, 1-3 Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Of all the works of mercy which the early church gave itself to, right from the beginning, she gave priority to caring for her widows. If we go back to the initial chapters of Acts, we see that the first Christians began immediately to minister to the widows in their midst. They cared for their needs. In Acts 6, verse 1, we read, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. It wasn't a one-way street, though. The widows, for their part, served the needs of the people of God. So we see an interaction uh, taking place between the church serving the widows and the widows also serving the church. Um, Because the widows were alone, often they had lots of free time with few family responsibilities. So they gave themselves to special works of the service to the church. Um, A good example that we see is Anna, who we are told about in connection with Jesus' boyhood. In Luke 2, verse 37, And then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. In Acts 9, uh, we read of another woman, Dorcas, which is also Tabitha, who served the church through deeds of mercy, washing the feet of the saints. Now in Joppa, this is Acts 9, verses 36 to 40. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since little was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, "'Tabitha, arise.' And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up." Problems had also developed, though. A good handout is hard to resist, For the widows, certainly, but even more so maybe for the widows' relatives. So the question was asked, who has the primary responsibility to provide for the needs of these women, the church or their own families? Our scripture text addresses this question directly. Uh, As we examine the text more closely, then, let us admit straight out of the gate that the heart of the matter, according to the apostle Paul, is that Timothy must discriminate between different widows and must make decisions concerning the church's care of them based on certain principles laid down, including the judgment of the widow's character, both in the past and in the present. The church was to discriminate between her widows based on a number of criteria. We see this in the text. First, Timothy is to ask, Are we her family or does she have other family she ought to look to first? Second, uh, Paul instructs Timothy to ask, is this widow God-centered or pleasure-centered? And finally, uh, thirdly, Timothy is asked to find out her age, whether she's over or under 60. Then Timothy is to ask whether this widow has fulfilled the calling of a Christian woman or not. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 in the text says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. So, the question then is, what does it mean to be a widow indeed? Uh, The church is not to be blind in her charity, but to single out those who really have a legitimate need. Only those widows really in need are to be helped. The next few verses then go on to spell out more completely what is meant by this phrase, really in need. There are essentially four criteria that we have. Uh, The first is used that that are used to discriminate among the widows. And in verse 4 we see, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So we see the command to us that we're to... Uh, look to the widows that are in our own families and were to take care of them first before sending them to the church for help. We are commanded to make some kind of return to our parents, to the widows in our families. The second text we see is verse 6, 5 and 6. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So in verse 5, we see that the widow who is really in need has first fixed her hope on God and secondly, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. And then in verse 6, that the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. The third criterion to be used in discriminating among the widows is that widows are only to be enrolled if they're over 60 years of age. Verse 9, we see a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. The fourth criterion that we see is uh, widows are only to be enrolled who have in the past demonstrated godly character. So 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10. Again, this is in the text. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. And then verse 10. Having a reputation for good works and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So this begins to really cut against us the words uh, discriminating and having criterion and setting up that uh, there are these decisions that have to be made and we have to base them on real life and we have to look at the actual person in front of us and we have to make these decisions based on these practical applications that we have written here whether she shows hospitality um, whether she takes care of the saints' needs. These are the people in the church. These are the people around us. If they care for the needs of those around them. Helping those in trouble. Devoting themselves to all kinds of good deeds. We see a similar list given in Titus 2, where we read, "...but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. So if we go back to the first criterion mentioned in the text. The only widows that are to be supported by the church are those who have no children or grandchildren to properly bear the first responsibility of caring and providing for them. Um, So there are two points that should be made about that first criterion. One is true religion begins in the home and to provide for and love and serve our families is to be religious. Those who don't care for their families, no matter what they claim their religion to be, or what church they belong to, or what visions or prophetic utterances they claim to have revealed through them, are worse than the pagans or unbelievers. So you can look at this and um, you can look at somebody and say, wow, they're truly spiritual. They have all of these gifts that they've received and they've done all of these amazing things. But if you look at them and you see that they haven't cared for their family, it becomes pretty clear to us that there's a serious problem. And in the words of Scripture, they've become worse than an unbeliever because they're making these claims... They're making these spiritual claims and it becomes very clear that they're not spiritual. They are not following the Word of the Lord in even providing for their own family. As we see that, um, it can be very hard to make that distinction. To say, well... I know everybody thinks that this person is amazing because of all of the spiritual things that they do, but really what I need to decide is what does Scripture say about them and what does Scripture say about myself. Do I need to follow uh, in their path by being spiritual or do I need to follow in the path of Scripture's commands by caring for my own family and being truly spiritual. In the church, we see under this spirituality that you can't neglect your own family to be spiritual. I'm reminded of um, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and this is in Mark 7, And here it is, uh, verses 9-13. to Jesus says, uh, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. He who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Um, so we can take these. We can take these scriptures and we can apply them to our own lives. Indeed, we must apply them to our own lives and we can look at ourselves and we can look at the ways that we have to care for our mothers, care for the widows in our midst. And I remind you that the widows in our midst are our spiritual mothers. And that's part of what this uh, text is about is remembering that our family is the family of Christ. So we look at ourselves and we look at our family and we find that it's tempting sometimes to turn towards the needs of the church and to turn away from the needs of our physical family. It's tempting sometimes to turn from the needs that we see all around us and to use our money, to use our spiritual gifts, to use them in ways that we might not, um, we might not need to do the uncomfortable work of addressing the family in our midst.
0: I want to finish by um, emphasizing the point Joseph was emphasizing, namely this, this hyper-spirituality. The church is filled with ways for women to be spiritual and men to be spiritual today. But of course, men, most men aren't spiritual. Most men look at the hyper-spirituality of women and say, to heck with it, because they know what they have to live with at home. And there's such a disparity between what's going on at church and what they live with at home, and and yet their wife has such a reputation for godliness that they just say, who needs it? Real religion is a man who goes and pickets at the abortion place. Do you understand that? That's manhood. If you read the last few chapters of Job and you see how Job conducted himself, why did God think so highly of Job? One of the principal things is Job was an advocate for the poor, for the sojourner, for the wet back. And he, if there was a widow, he was a tyrant in her behalf. He was like a lion in her behalf. And this is real religion. So now why am I bringing up about men? Well, I'm bringing it up because I want you to understand that women who are religious are not the ones who go around using all the words and, and like show up at all the Bible studies. That's bunk. Religion among the fairer sex is what? The Bible's very clear in saying what religion is. Do you understand this? It's very clear. And it says it is being what? Someone who washes the feet of the saints. This was not a hypothetical construct in the early church. When you came in, your feet were washed. If she did it, she was a spiritual woman. It was having children. It was caring for children. It was maintaining her home. It was loving and submitting to her husband. That's the spirituality that God sees and recognizes as legitimate on the part of women. Yesterday, or two days ago, David and I were going up to presbytery meeting, and we went by a big billboard. And the billboard is a perfect example of the spirituality American evangelicals think is real feminine spirituality. The billboard says, A woman's place is in the dome. And then, underneath, you see that what it's trying to get you to go to do is to go to a, is it Beth Moore? Is that who it was, David? A Beth Moore seminar at the Hoosier Dome or, or RCA Dome or whatever they're calling it now. Okay? Now, what are they surfing off of? Okay? Well, they're surfing off of the statement a woman's place is in the home. All right? And what they're saying is, but Christian women, and they're not trying to be negative about it, they're just saying, Christian women will be in the dome, you know. But the question is, are they saying something positive or negative about the statement of women's places in the home? Well, the man I was with in the car said his wife would get hot under the collar seeing that billboard because she's constantly oppressed by our culture denigrating her giving herself to her home and her children. She's viewed as being a nothing, a cipher, because she doesn't have a real job, a real career, real importance, right? Right. And so he said that she'd look at that and not want to go because it says a woman's place is in the dome and she'd feel that it was denigrating. Now, maybe he was right or wrong about that woman he's married to. Annie, was he right or wrong? (laughs) But even if Annie didn't take offense at it, here's the question: what kind of spirituality do we want from the women in our lives? And if you're a woman, what's your spirituality? Is it that you go to BSF all the time? Or is it that you love your children and your husband? Is it that you're at every play group and that you're always saying very spiritual things? Or is it that you give yourself to washing the feet of the saints? Do you live for pleasure or do you live for God? Now, I want to say one other thing to you. Now I'll be done, David. I promise. You do not have to be married, ever. And you don't have to ever have children to be a mother of the church. Okay? Mother Teresa was Mother Teresa! And she was never married, she never had children, and so consequently, she had innumerable children. More children than you could ever name. Alright? Motherhood is... A gift that comes from your femininity. And it is motherhood, and everyone recognizes it. David typed up this section from the great divorce of C.S. Woods. And it speaks of what I'm talking about. David pointed it out to me. First came the bright spirits. They're up in heaven. And they're talking about the people entering. First came the bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, Though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundredweight, and their fall would have been like the crashing of shoulders, of boulders. Then on the left and right at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys on the one hand and girls on the other. If I could remember the singing and write down the notes, no man could read that score. Would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians. And, listen to this, after this, after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. Is it? I whispered to the guide, no, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Gallers Green. You know, her name was, uh, you know, Jane Doe, and she lived in Spicewood. All right? You've never heard of her. And he says, but she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance, he says, hey, she is one of the great ones. You've heard of, that fame in this country up in heaven and fame on earth are two very, very different things. He says, and who are all these young men and women on each side? And he's answered, they are her sons and daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family, sir. He answers, every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, isn't that a bit hard on their parents, their own parents? And the answer is no. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents loving them more. So you don't have to be married. You don't have to have children to be a mother. And so, I want to encourage this as a church. Let's have done with all the lingo and all the, the Bible studies and all this crud that we can, you know. Let's wash the feet of the saints. Let's care for the widows and orphans. Let's encourage those who do the caring of the widows and orphans knowing they're going to get weary of it. All right. Let's have true spirituality, right? And if you have to choose between washing the feet of the saints... And going to a Bible study, by all means, wash the feet of the saints. Because that's motherhood. And it ought to be honored here. And uh, I, I brag about this church. And sometimes I brag about our elders' meetings, how excellent they are, and how uh, almost always, we sometimes fight, but almost always they're a great, great joy. But if I really brag about this church, what I brag about is I say that this is a church that's filled with godly and strong women. And it is. I can't think of anything better to say about a church, anything that is more a barometer of the godliness of a church, than strong women who love motherhood and give themselves to it. And we're not talking about sitting in the front of a window with frilly curtains and like a nice little coffee mug and an open Bible, um... You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hope you do that. But forget all the crud. You know what I'm saying? Be dirty. Get your fingernails filled with dark things. You know? My mother, I love her. She's a gardener. Every time you go to see her, you can see dirt all around her fingernails. Well, that's what motherhood is. Be organic. Life here will be over soon and then you'll have all the hyper-spirituality you ever want. Well, I guess that says something about my view of heaven, and undoubtedly David will teach me after this sermon is over. All right, let's stand and be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the mothers in Israel that we have had in our midst and have today. We thank you for the women who have.